Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians 15, we'll be reading two different portions of this text. It's maybe helpful to have a brief introduction before we dig into this, this letter. The question uh, that this passage will answer for us today is this. And maybe it's a question you find yourself asking throughout the week. How is it possible to persevere in the Christian faith? living in a world that's broken by sin, struggling with the sin that I find in my own heart and in my own life, how is it possible that I might persevere in the Christian faith? And the answer that we find in 1 Corinthians 15 is simply this, that we have a crucified, risen, living Savior. And so as we believe and rest and follow him, that Savior, we can persevere in the good faith, the good fight of faith that we're called to live. So let's hear these words. 1 Corinthians 15, we'll be reading first of all verses 1 through 20, and then we'll move to verse 50. And remember that this is the word of God to you. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God, because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins." Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And then move forward to verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Thus ends the reading of God's perfect word. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we ask now that as we consider your word, that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit and cause us by that same Spirit to believe your promises and to keep your commandments. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. In chapter 15, Paul is bringing the meat of this letter to a grand and glorious conclusion. There's another chapter, and it has lots of details in it, but really the the meat, the theological heart of this whole letter finds its climax in chapter 15, and I think its practical climax in particular in verse 58. Paul began this letter with the foolishness of the cross. He told us that the whole focus of his ministry was simply this, proclaiming Jesus Christ and him crucified. Chapter 15 begins in that same place. Verse 3, it tells us that Christ died for our sins. But praise be to God, the message doesn't end there at the cross. Chapter 15 gives us the rest of the story. An empty tomb a resurrected Christ, a living Savior. And when you get to verse 50 of chapter 15, you read of the victory that Jesus Christ won by his death and resurrection, a victory over sin, a victory over death, and a victory over the great enemy, Satan. And if you're in Christ, if you're trusting in him, that victory is yours. And with that in mind, this whole direction of the letter, finding this this great and grand conclusion in the resurrection of Christ, you might expect Paul to finish with verse 57. It's a great conclusion, isn't it? Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If I was writing the letter, I'd probably end there. The hope of the resurrection transform bodies when we'll all be changed and made like our savior paul doesn't end there he goes on to say therefore 
My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Why does Paul do that? Why does he continue with verse 58? I think it's because he's doing the work of a pastor. He's meeting the Corinthians where they are. And by the power of the Spirit, he's meeting us right where we are as well. Still on the earth. Living life in a fallen, broken world. Living life in a place where it's frustrating and filled with sin. And where we're struggling with the sin in our own lives as well. And in that context, he gives us this exhortation. He gives us this encouragement in verse 58 to persevere. And he tells us how we can do it. How can a Christian persevere in a broken and fallen world? By living in light of the fact that Jesus is alive. That he was raised from the dead. That he's reigning and ruling right now at the right hand of God. And therefore, you can know that your labor is not in vain. One of the greatest blessings in life is to enjoy the fruits of hard labor, to know the satisfaction of a job well done, and to celebrate that. You labored over a cheesecake. It looks so good. But you don't just look at it, right? You eat it. You enjoy the fruit of your labor. An artist labors over a painting or writing a piece of music, and they don't finish it and put the paper down. They play the music. They look at the painting, and they get a glimpse of the beauty of God's creation. You're given a project at work, and your boss tells you how significant it is to the task at hand. You spend hours, and when you finish, your boss is pleased, your coworkers are impressed. It's a good thing to be able to enjoy the fruit of your labor. Of course, we also know the other side of living in this world. Those hard tasks that seem as if there's never fruit to enjoy or rarely fruit to enjoy. Chores that never seem to end. You spend hours cleaning the kitchen and 10 minutes later it's dirty again. Endless piles of dirty laundry. You mow the yard, and it starts growing immediately. You pull the weeds, and more weeds come up in their place. You finish that work assignment, and your boss says, we don't need that anymore. It's the frustration of life in the world in which we live. But our passage points to an even more frustrating and more difficult thing. The toil of living a Christian life in a fallen world making godly choices that in the eyes of the world seem foolish. Pursuing an eternal weight of glory that seems as if it has very little payoff in the moment. That struggle against sin, whereas you try to kill sin, you take a step forward and it seems almost immediately that you take a step backward. You share the gospel with an unbelieving friend and they reject it. You train your children over and over again, and sometimes it seems as if the results are very small. That's the futility of life to which Paul speaks in verse 58. It's why he tells us that our labor is not in vain, because so often it seems as if it is. 
And he gives us an answer, and it's simply this. Since Jesus, your Savior, is alive, you can work diligently for him with steadfast confidence, knowing that your labor has eternal value and eternal reward. You can work with confidence, knowing that your, va- your labor has eternal value and eternal reward, because Jesus is alive. And that's what we're going to consider this morning. We'll see it in three parts. First of all, we'll see a foundation, a foundation for Christian living. Secondly, we'll be a, see a call to action, activation for Christian living. And then finally, we'll see the motivation. First of all, a foundation for fruitful Christian living. And it's quite simple, actually, in the context of this chapter. The foundation is simply this. You have a crucified, risen, living Savior. I think you even see that in verse 58. Now, you might look at verse 58 and say, where does it talk about the resurrection of Christ? I think you see it in that very first word, therefore. In other words, Paul's saying the whole letter, especially chapter 15, but really the whole letter has been driving us toward this point. This verse provides the practical theological conclusion of the whole letter. Paul has in mind everything that precedes it. He's saying because the gospel is true, you can live in this way. And he reminds us, first of all, or calls us to remember the gospel. You see that at the very beginning of chapter 15. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. He's reminding us of the centrality of the gospel for the Christian life. I will remind you. In other words, he's saying, don't forget the gospel. When you struggle against sin, when you struggle to live a Christian life in a fallen world, never forget the gospel. He has a particular message in mind. He tells us that it's something that he received and that he's called to preach. It has historic roots as he describes it for us. In verses 3 and 4, twice he tells us that the content of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ is all according to the scriptures. In other words, it's God's plan before the foundation of the world laid out in the scriptures, fulfilled in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. Do not forget the gospel. He reminds us as well that the gospel gives us the promise of a present Savior. He tells us that very clearly in verses 5 through 9. I always find these verses remarkable that Paul stops to tell us all the people that the risen Savior visited before he ascended to the right hand of God. You ever think about that, how remarkable that is? That the risen Christ, who could have rightly ascended to the right hand of God immediately, stopped for several weeks to visit with those who had followed him so that he could speak to them and they could see him and that they could even touch him and even touch his wounds to remind them that they have a present Savior who's always with them even to the end of the age. So it's a gospel with historic roots. It's a gospel that has the promise of a present Savior And it's the gospel that's been given to us, communicated to us by Christ through the apostles and the prophets. And it's that gospel that you and I need each and every day. We're saved by it. We stand on it. We hold fast to it. That's what he's telling us in verses 1 and 2. And then, as if to kind of 
remind us in a different way. He asks, or he makes this statement, unless you believed in vain. In other words, keep on believing the gospel. Don't stop rehearsing the gospel. This is what unites us. It's what gives us strength as we live the Christian life. So he tells us to remember the gospel. Then he tells us what the gospel is. You have in verses 3 and 4, I think, one of the, the, the most simple and clear summaries of the gospel in the whole of the scriptures. If you ever wonder, how do I share the gospel with an unbeliever? Memorizing verses 3 and 4 is a good beginning to learn how to speak about the gospel. Here it is, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Christ died for our sins. Don't miss that phrase, for our sins. There's the problem, our rebellion against God. That calls forth the curse of God, the, the sins who have as, which have as their wages death. And Christ answered that problem on the cross. We sing it this way sometimes, in our place condemned he stood. He died the death that our sins deserved. He bore God's wrath. He paid the penalty for our sins in full. If you're trusting in him, he bought you with a price. Christ died for our sins. It goes on to say he was buried. I wonder how often we think about the fact that the eternal son of God rested in the grave. We celebrate Good Friday. We celebrate Easter. Do we think about Saturday? The eternal son of God in human flesh truly died. His body rested in the grave. He continued under the power of death for a time. All to bear the weight of the guilt of our sins, to pay the penalty due for our sins, for my sins, for your sins, for the sins of all those who believe and trust in him. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. And then he tells us he was raised on the third day. Gerhardus Voss, in writing about the resurrection, wrote these words. I think they're really helpful. He said that the resurrection of Christ was a public announcement to the world that the penalty of death has been borne by Christ to its bitter end. Announcement to the world. Think about what happens on those three days when Christ dies and when he's raised. The world goes dark. The veil in the temple is torn in two. Dead bodies walk out of their graves. And then on the third day, Jesus Christ himself walks out of the grave never to die again. Announcement to the world that the gospel is true, and that Jesus is a perfect Savior. And in his resurrection, it proclaims to the world and to us that the penalty for sin has been paid in full. The death has been defeated entirely. The curse annihilated forever through the power of the risen Christ. Simple, complete, profound summary of the gospel. And Paul says, remember it, believe it proclaim it, and live in light of this gospel truth. Do you want to know how your work, how you can know that your work for the Lord is valuable? You can know it because it's been sealed by your crucified and risen Savior. 
So he calls us to remember the gospel. He describes the gospel. And then he talks to us about the victory of Christ's resurrection. We see that very clearly beginning in verse 50. Remember again that 1 Corinthians begins with a crucified Savior, but it ends with a risen, living Savior. And beginning in verse 50, Paul points us to the victory that is ours through our risen Savior. It's the theme, really, of this whole chapter, but it finds this crescendo in verse 50, where it says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Understand what he's saying when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit. That means you and it means me. In our sinful fallen flesh, we cannot inherit the kingdom of God. But he goes on to say in verse 51, Behold, I tell you a mystery. The glorious mystery of the gospel he's explaining to us. And it goes on then to describe the future resurrection that is ours in Christ if we trust in him. Dead bodies are made alive. Mortal becomes immortality. Pain and suffering disappears. On that great and glorious day when the risen Christ returns, death will finally and fully be defeated. The sting of death has already been pulled out. And Satan is now a toothless dragon. And then he tells us very clearly in verse 57 that his victory is our victory. But thanks be to God, he says, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that victory, though incomplete in this life, is already certain and final. The power of Christ's victorious resurrection belongs to all those who believe. That's what he was telling us way back in verse 20 when he says that Christ has become the first fruits. By his resurrection from the dead, we already have access to the resurrected victory power of Jesus by faith. His victory is ours. But it's the first fruits. I'm sure some of you garden. Don't you look forward to that first tomato ripe on the vine that as you pull it off, you slice it, it tastes so good. But part of why it tastes so good is because there's more to come. That's what's being explained to us. We have the first fruits right now that by faith we're united to Christ, even in his resurrection, seated with him in the heavenly places, we're told in Ephesians 2. We have that victory already, but at that great and glorious day, we will know it completely. There'll be no more death, no more suffering, no more tears, no more pain, no more sin. We'll look on our Savior's face. Paul is telling us that Christ's resurrection is your resurrection, and because that's true, everything about the Christian life is different. You live in, in the light of Christ's resurrection, and you live in the power of his resurrection. That's the foundation. But then we see a call to action. That foundation then strengthens us and activates us in the work of the kingdom of God. Verse 58, it says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. By the power of the risen Christ, he calls us to be steadfast. That word means firmly settled. In fact, if you look back at verses 1 and 2, it tells us that we're called to stand in the gospel, to hold fast in the gospel. He's bringing that back now and saying, 
You can be steadfast. As you live the Christian life, you can be steadfast if you fix your gaze on your resurrected Savior. If you remember who Jesus is, the eternal Son of God who took on human flesh, and if you remember what he's done and what he continues to do by his death, resurrection, and ascension, fix your gaze there and you can be steadfast. You ever watched a a gymnast perform on a balance beam? I'm amazed by it. But notice what they never do. They don't look at their feet. They look at their feet, they'd fall. So they're going straight, they're looking ahead. As they spin, they look at the beam, but they never look at their feet. That's something of the image here. Take your eyes off yourself and fix your gaze on your Savior. With this one word, steadfast, Paul calls us to anchor all our hopes, all our confidence in our Savior. Don't turn from him. Don't waver in your confidence in him. Don't compromise the truth of the gospel. Be steadfast in Christ. You ever wonder why the scripture warns us so often about the the temptation to fall away and calls us to remember? It's because we're so prone to forget. We see it throughout the scriptures. We see it in our own lives and the temptations we face every day. We sing about it, prone to wander, prone to leave the God I love. Paul points us to a steadfast anchor. We have that same call in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews 6, verses 19, where we're told that we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. This is the promise of God, and in particular, the one who fulfills the promise of God, Jesus himself. And Paul is saying, like the writer of Hebrews, anchor your soul to Jesus. We have this, we have him as a sure anchor of the soul. So be steadfast. He goes on then to say, be immovable. This is a second image. It's stronger. It's a more forceful image. It has with it the idea that it's impossible to be moved. Have you ever stood on a pier at the ocean as the waves are crashing? You see sailboats in the distance that are being tossed to and fro. You see a strong swimmer who thinks they're swimming in a strong line, but they're being pulled to the left and to the right. But that pier, hopefully, never moves. He's calling us to to rest in Christ who is immovable, who never changes, who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And therefore, we can have confidence in him that the truth of the gospel never changes. He says, set your feet there in the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is the call to the church throughout the ages. We have all sorts of example in church history of when the church does not stand fast, and when it does stand fast, we have it in our own history in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. This is part of the battle that led to the founding of the OPC, was a rejection of the gospel, including a rejection of the actual historical physical resurrection of Jesus. And when the OPC was founded, pastors and members stood up and said, we won't give an inch here. There's no compromise when it comes to the resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul's calling us to. He even reminds us of the significance of never wavering on this particular truth of the gospel, the resurrection of Christ. He reminds us of the significance of it by telling us what we lose 
if we give up on the resurrection of Jesus. In verses 13 through 20, that's that whole list of statements and questions. He tells us in verse 13 that if there's no resurrection from the dead, we have no Savior. Verse 14, if, we have, if there's no resurrection from the dead, there's no faith. Verses 15 and 16, if there's no resurrection from the dead, there's no truth. Verse 17, if there's no resurrection from the dead, we have no forgiveness of sins. Verses 18 and 19, if there's no resurrection from the dead, we have no hope. And we should be pitied above all others. But he tells us in verse 20, in fact, Christ has been raised. This is the due north for believers. The sure and steadfast anchor, the port in the storm of life in a difficult world. Jesus Christ lives. So he calls us to be steadfast and immovable, standing firmly on the gospel, and then he calls us to work. Be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. It's interesting, that word abounding in almost all the rest of the Old and New Testament refers to God. He abounds in mercy. We sang about that in Psalm 103. We read about it in the book of Ephesians, the riches of his grace in Ephesians 1, which he lavished or poured out in plentiful amounts to us. Ephesians 3, verses 18 and 19, he talks about the love that surpasses knowledge, God's love for us that's ever abounding. He's never stingy with us. He abounds to us in grace and mercy. And Paul's now saying, root yourself in the gospel so that you can imitate your Savior. And you can imitate your God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He calls us now in Christ to abound in generosity in the work of the Lord, to give of our time, to give of our talents, to give of our treasure, and to give even sometimes in ways that seem to be too much and too great in the eyes of the world. Again, we sing about this, don't we? We sing about the gospel and the cross of Jesus Christ as something that demands my soul, my life, and my all. So he calls us to abound in good works, in the work of the Lord, and he calls us to always abound. That's maybe a harder word. Not just when it's convenient, not when I have more time or more strength or more energy, which as you grow older, you realize you don't get those. They don't come. Always abound right now and all the time and abound in the work of the Lord. He's talking about particular kinds of work, believing and trusting in Christ, proclaiming the truth of the gospel, living with each other in love so that we can then live with our neighbors in love, fighting against sin both within us and sin in the world in which we live. And in this kind of work, we're called to always abound, to give of the best of our time and our talents and our treasure to do that work in the name of the Lord. So we have the foundation, a risen Christ. We have a call to action, to be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. But then the passage ends with words of motivation. We see that at the very end of verse 58. Knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Here's where Paul, as a pastor, directs his pen right at our hearts. He knows the struggle and 
discouragement of life in a fallen world. He knows that it often appears as if our labor is in vain, that it's futile, that life often seems pointless, sometimes helpless, and sometimes even hopeless. And with that in mind, he says that we should abound in the work of the Lord because we can know, you can know that your labor is not in vain. Notice, he's saying you can know in this way, with the same kind of confidence that you know that Jesus Christ died and he lives for you. With that same kind of confidence, you can know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. You can know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain because the grave of Jesus is empty. You can know that your labor is not in vain because the Lord Jesus Christ lives that over 500 souls saw him walk the earth after his resurrection. You can know that he's alive because of how he changes you by the power of his Holy Spirit and conforms you more and more into his image. You can know that your labor's not in vain because Jesus swallowed up death in victory, because he removed the sting of sin, because he has power over sin, and because he's defeated death. For all those reasons, you can know that your labor is always useful, and it's never futile. We know it as well because of what we read in Revelation 19. I want to end there. If you have a copy of the scriptures, you might turn there. Revelation 19, verses 6 through 8. We have there a picture of heaven. The marriage supper of the Lamb, that great and glorious day after we are raised with new bodies and we enter into the presence of God and look on the face of our Savior. And it describes that day in in this way, beginning in Revelation 19, verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. And then listen to these words, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. You can know that your labor is not in vain, because one day, by, uh, by faith in Christ, you will stand no longer in faith, but by sight and be clothed even, not just in the righteousness of Christ, but even in the fine linen of those deeds that you did in the power of the resurrected Son. Friends, do you need that encouragement today? Do you need the encouragement to know that your labor is not in vain? That even as you fight against sin, a battle that you often feel as if you're losing, that you can have victory? Well, friends, you can know it for certain. Because the very Savior, Jesus, who speaks to us through these words, tells us that he's alive and that for that reason, your labor is never in vain. Friends, let's go encouraged today to live in faith and obedience to our Savior, knowing that your labor is never in vain. Let's pray.